You're listening to a sermon from Iron City Church. For unity, for diversity, for the city, and for the glory of God. Well, one of the blessings of, one of the many blessings of my summer sabbatical, as I've mentioned, was being able to uh, knock out a number of books that have been piling up on my shelf for a long time. I was able to read a lot of different kinds of books, and I know that I'm over 20 years late to the party, but was able to finish working through Harry Potter for the first time, trying to get more fiction into my life. But my go-to enjoyable reading uh, for years have been biographies and was able to work through a few different biographies this summer. My favorite biography I read this summer, most impactful, was called The Death of a King, about the last year of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s life. I really enjoyed these different books, but I would be really confused if I approach these different books in the same way, especially thinking about Harry Potter and this biography of Dr. King. In order to not be confused by the books we're reading, it's important that we understand the purpose of the author in writing these books. If I thought that Harry Potter was a biography, I would have been really confused, really perplexed, probably really scared, especially by the end of the third book. But if I would have thought the death of a king, this biography about Dr. King was just fiction, just made up, I would have missed the impact of this man who refused to be bought and it cost him his life. If I knew though that Dr., the death of a king about Dr. King was a biography, but did not read the preface where the author told me this was just gonna be focusing on the last year of his life, I probably would have been really frustrated by a lot of things that are left out about Dr. King's life. There's a temptation, I think, for all of us to skip over the preface where often the author tells us about what he or she is writing for us. It's important for us to know what kind of book it is and also to know the why behind the book if we're really going to understand it. Today, we are beginning the Gospel of Luke. We've got four different Gospels in the Scriptures. Gospel just means good news. And so these are four different counts that Christians have called Gospels because this is God's message of good news to us of how we can be made right with Him. And as we begin this Gospel, we're going to spend a significant amount of time in Luke's Gospel in the coming days. And in order, I think, for us to benefit the most from it, we need to understand the why behind Luke writing this. So these four verses that were just read for us are often considered the preface to Luke's gospel. I know it's a temptation, I think for all of us again, to skip over it and just get on to the, what we feel like is the heart of the book. But it's important for us to slow down so we don't miss the why behind Luke writing this gospel for us. So the structure of this sermon you're about to hear, I'm gonna try to ask and answer four questions. Who wrote this? How was it written? What is it about? And why was it written? So four questions. Who wrote this? How was it written? What is it about? And why was it written? These are four points, four questions from these four verses we'll attempt to answer. But first, who wrote it? Again, I've already brought up the guy's name who's listed here in my Bible, the gospel according to Luke. But in the actual text, 
Luke's name is not mentioned anywhere. But we know from church history that this gospel has always been tied to Luke. The earliest Christians all believe this is from Luke. The church fathers are all in agreement. This is from Luke himself. But who was Luke? Well, we know some things about Luke from the rest of the New Testament. In Colossians 4, verse 14, Paul calls Luke the beloved physician. Luke was there with Paul. Luke was a companion with the apostle Paul, and he was a well-loved, beloved doctor, apparently. We also know from the New Testament that Luke was a Gentile, which just simply means that Luke was not Jewish. Gentiles, if you're familiar with the story of the Bible, Gentiles were considered the outsiders of the people of God. But Luke's gospel is an outsider. Again, writing good news for those who consider themselves outsiders. Dr. Tony Evans says this, the disregarded, the outcast, the forgotten, and the marginalized got to see and experience the love of Christ even if Jesus had to confront the Jewish leaders to do it. Luke reveals that God is no respecter of persons. He opened his heart to the needy through the kingdom ministry of his son. In this gospel, Jesus heals the sick, raises the dead, and welcomes the prodigal home. So Luke is the author behind this incredible account of Jesus' life. But the next question we need to consider is, how was it written? How do we get here? How do we get here, again, almost 2,000 years with this before us? Look at verse one with me. Luke records, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us. So Luke here says from the beginning, many have undertaken to write about Jesus. And I'm a sucker for a good biography and maybe even more so for a good documentary. It's not hard to find biographies or documentaries on famous folks. But if, again, if you are a sucker for them like me, you'll know that some are better than others. Sometimes you have to wade through the bad documentaries and biographies to find the good ones. But when someone's a big deal, again, people write about them. People wanna know more about them. Sometimes people wanna profit off of them. So they write books and they produce documentaries. I imagine most of you know that college football season is back and whether you love him or hate him, few people argue about who the GOAT is when it comes to college coaches these days. A few years ago, there was a biography published on Coach Saban, on his life. Not surprised that someone wanted to, again, benefit off of his popularity and write a biography, but also not surprising because Coach Saban did not authorize this, that he was upset about it because it was published without his permission. Again, he called it explicitly unauthorized. And he says, when he's ready for a biography to be written about him, then he will authorize it and be a part of it. This is what he said. And there won't be any misinformation. There won't be any false statements. There won't be any hearsay. It will all be the real deal. After Jesus' resurrection, Jesus authorized and commissioned his disciples to tell other people about his life and ministry. He said he would even send his spirit to bring to remembrance all the things that they had saw, all the things that he said among them. Luke is unique among the gospel writers 
Again, not only is he the only Gentile, but he's also the only gospel writer who didn't personally know Jesus during his earthly life and ministry. But again, Luke becomes a disciple of Paul. Luke spends time around all kinds of eyewitnesses interviewing them that saw and felt and heard Jesus during his earthly life. So how was this gospel written? Look at verse two and three again with me. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke brings up this dude, Theophilus here in verse three. Theophilus means lover of God. Few scholars think that this is just a code name for a group of Christians that Luke is writing to, but most think that this is a real dude, a probably new Gentile Christian who Luke has gotten to know. Luke may have posted some kind of GoFundMe uh, in order to produce this gospel of all the traveling around and interviewing eyewitnesses. And it's thought Theopolis is probably the guy who wrote the check the guy who funded all of these trips and travels around in order for Luke to interview all of these folks that we see their stories show up in this gospel. But notice the language here. Again, those who were interviewed were eyewitnesses. Those who were there with Jesus from the beginning. Those who are ministers of the word that have delivered these things to us, Luke says. So from these eyewitness interviews, Luke says in verse three that it seemed good to me also, having followed all these things closely, not from a distance, but closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke has followed all these things closely for a period of time now. And now he's writing an orderly account for old Theo. I think we can imply from what I said about Jesus' words about sending his spirit to help his followers bring to remembrance all the things that he taught. And as Luke is interviewing all these eyewitnesses, the spirits at work through all of this process, one of the things that Christians have always believed about the Bible is that the spirit inspires fallible folks to write infallible truth, inspires flawed people to write things that are perfectly and holistically true. I know some of you are too young to remember, but there was a author named Dan Brown who probably 20 something years ago released the Da Vinci Code books and these caused quite a stir. A lot of people started asking a lot of questions about how we got the Bible. But I think one of the reasons why people were so confused about this because they forgot what kind of books the Da Vinci Code was, what the purpose behind them or they're, they're fiction. Dan Brown is not a historical or biblical scholar. That's obvious if you are and you read the books. Again, he's just trying to entertain people, engage people. These had people asking all kinds of questions about lost gospels and why we put the Bible together the way they, that we do. But as Luke tells us in verse one, that a lot of folks wrote about Jesus. But again, we only have four included in our scriptures. Why? Well, one of the tests of 
things being accepted as scripture is that they were either written by an apostle or written by someone who was an associate of the apostle, of someone who, again, who had been with Jesus in his earthly life and ministry, or again, like Paul had, Jesus appeared to him. Also, one of the things that was considered was, does it, did the spirit inspire this? Does this have the unity to go in line with the rest of the scripture? Does this have the power to change those who are reading it? And these are some of the things that were considered as they're saying, okay, we've got all these things written down. What are the things that God has inspired for his people to have about Jesus? So Christians have believed, again, for almost 2,000 years now, the Holy Spirit inspired Luke through this meticulous process of interviewing and recording the testimonies of eyewitnesses to write an orderly account, as he says, about Jesus' life and ministry. Again, notice the word orderly here in verse 3. I know some of you are like me and that you love order. I love things being in their proper place. Loving things in their proper place and being a dad of four does not mix very well, does not go very well most of the time. But when it is, when things are all in the right place, it feels at least for a moment like all is right in the world. But I know some of you actually love order more than me. The reason why I know that is some of you actually love spreadsheets. And I think old Dr. Luke is probably a guy who love, would, would have loved spreadsheets. He loves order. And when he's saying order here, he's not saying he's gonna put things in just chronological order for us, but in a logical order to point you to who Jesus of Nazareth really is. Luke is writing history for us. And when you know that first century people were not dumb, I think often uh, as C.S. Lewis says, we're guilty of chronological snobbery. We think of people before us just actually were so primitive and didn't know what's going on. It's very obvious people in the first century knew and recognized different genres of writing. They could tell that Luke was writing a verifiable historical account. Even those, again, who were eyewitnesses that opposed Jesus. Luke, Luke had to be very meticulous about writing things because these people are still alive, people who love Jesus and people who hated him. He had to make sure that he was writing things about a man from Nazareth that were true. These things that were about Jesus that began to shake the Roman Empire and even by Luke's time writing this are beginning to shake all of the world. He's meticulous in his details in writing. So look just for an example down two verses in verse five. Look what he says. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. There's so many meticulous details that he gives here, almost annoyingly so at times, of all these details of people and places and events. Look at the beginning of chapter two, look at the beginning of chapter three. Again, these are here everywhere throughout this gospel. Luke was a doctor by trade, but he became an incredible historian. And again, I'm, part, I'm sure that the Lord was preparing him for this task many years before he actually wrote this. I'm sure he's probably a pretty meticulous child and again, became a doctor. And at some point along the way, Luke meets Paul and becomes a follower of Jesus. Paul begins to mentor and disciple Luke. We also know that Luke wrote the book of Acts, this early account of the history of the church. There's a point in the book of Acts when Luke goes from using the pronouns of they and them to us and we. We know that Luke again joins in with his crew with Paul and the apostles on these missionary journeys. So we've seen who wrote it and how it was written. 
But third, what is it about? What is all of this gospel account ultimately about? Look back at verse one. And as much as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, he says. This Greek word here for accomplished is really important. Again, it's sometimes translated as also fulfilled. You need to know that Luke isn't just writing about some amazing stuff that happened with Jesus. He's writing about things that he is seeing as a fulfillment of things that was promised and prophesied over thousands of years about the coming Messiah that have now been fulfilled in this man, in Jesus of Nazareth. A couple of things I think will be encouraging takeaways here just at this moment. One, Luke sees these things as God fulfilling his promises and purposes, which should be really encouraging to us as the people of God. God keeps his word. He fulfills his promises to his people. Peter, the apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3 points out that, hey, it may, God may seem really slow to us at times, but he's not slow as we count slowest. Actually, the reason why God often takes thousands of years to bring things about is because he's really patient with people with sinners like you and me, not wishing any should perish, Peter says. He's patient. He's not slow, but he's patient in the way he fulfills his promises. Again, the second encouragement here is to know the scriptures written over thousands of years with numerous authors from different cultures and continents. They are all in unison pointing to this one man. And what we see in the scriptures is throughout the Old Testament, the promise of God being fulfilled more and more of what the Messiah is going to be like. But then in the New Testament, we see them narrowed in all on and fulfilled in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. The Old Testament, as it often said, are just God's promises made. And the New Testament is a recounting of God's promises kept or fulfilled for us in Jesus. Thabiti Anyabwile has a commentary on Luke that's been helpful. One of the things he points out is these first four verses of Luke, and then if you fast forward to the end of Luke, Luke 24, the last chapter, really serve as the bookends, literally and figuratively for this. In Luke 24, we see Jesus, after his resurrection, show up on the road to Emmaus. He meets two of his disciples there. And one of the things we see happens on this road is that Jesus begins with the law of Moses and with the prophets and the Psalms, he says, which is a shorthand way of saying all of the scriptures. He starts from the beginning, walks all the way through the prophets and he shows how all these things must be fulfilled and how Jesus is ultimately the one who can fulfill them. Oh, how I wish I was there on that day and heard Jesus expound upon these things. But we do have written for us in the New Testament, again, especially as we saw in the book of Hebrews, a way in which we see how all of the Old Testament, all of these promises, all the Hebrew scriptures find their fulfillment in Jesus. But one of the interesting things that struck me this week is that like the first four verses of Luke's gospel that don't explicitly say Jesus' name. Again, that, that's kind of the way the Old Testament is as well, that all the first four verses of Luke's gospel are about Jesus, obviously, if you keep reading. The Old Testament doesn't explicitly meet, have Jesus' name there. But again, if, if you have eyes to see, it's pretty clear once you get to the first verse of the New Testament that Jesus is the one that all these things ultimately point to. 
The first verse of Matthew tells us that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David, the one who's come to fulfill all the promises of God. Jesus said to the religious leaders, to the Pharisees, the people he was constantly going after in the gospels, he said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. He says, but they testify about me. He goes on to tell him, say, you say you believe in and follow Moses, but if you believe what Moses wrote, you'd believe in me because Moses wrote about me is what Jesus says. And here, I, I, I want to bring this home a little bit because again, I know not all of you, but some of you grew up around the church. You, again, by the Lord's grace, grew up in an environment where you were memorizing the Bible really early. Again, you know all the stories, you know so many of the things. The Pharisees, again, had memorized so much of the Hebrew scriptures, but they still missed the point. They missed the point of it all. The point is about Jesus. If you miss Jesus, then you miss everything. You miss the whole point of all of the scriptures. All of this is ultimately meant to point us, again, not to somewhere, but to someone, to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, which leads me to the fourth and last point. Why was this written? Why did Luke write this? Sometimes we have to guess when we're reading the Bible, okay, what, what all is the purpose behind this? But Luke is really helpful here. You know why? Because he tells us exactly why he wrote this. Look at verse four. It's helpful for me as a preacher. That you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Why did Luke write this? That you may have certainty. Circle that. If you mark in your Bible, underline it, whatever you need to do. You may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Can you say certainty? Certainty. You may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. Luke wrote this gospel so that his old buddy, his fellow outcast, Theophilus, and so that you here today in Birmingham, Alabama, may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught about Jesus. But hear me, I think Luke is assuming two things when he says this statement. One, he's assuming that you hearing this have actually been taught about Jesus. I know some of you are very new to Christianity and haven't been taught a lot about Jesus. And this is hopefully a good place to be in order to learn more about Jesus of Nazareth. But the second thing that he assumes here is that the things you've been taught about Jesus are true. We are living in a time where people are deconstructing their faith all around us. And I said months ago that not all deconstruction is the same. Some of you have needed to deconstruct your view of Jesus because the Jesus that you knew about was the Jesus of America and not the Jesus of Nazareth. And that Jesus who's made in the image of American culture and politics has no power to save you or anybody else. That guy, whoever he is, that idol that we have created in our own image and likeness in America needs to be deconstructed and needs to be done away with in the church. Sidney Jordan said in our sermon writing meeting this week, we need to ask ourselves as Christians, who is informing our view of Jesus? Is it the word or the world that's informing our view of Jesus? We need to be careful. Again, maybe the most quoted man from this pulpit by me is St. Augustine, the African father. 
He said, we can't just pick and choose what we believe in the gospels because if you do that, you don't ultimately believe in the gospel, but in yourself. We need to make sure that, again, the Jesus that we're worshiping, the Jesus that we're following is the Jesus of the scriptures. Again, not Jesus of America, but Jesus of Nazareth. One of the things I've told some of my skeptical friends, again, maybe once were considered themselves Christian, maybe just culturally, and they've no longer claim to follow Jesus. They've deconstructed, again, maybe this Americanized Jesus that they were taught and have so many, so many issues with. One, I've, I've tried to sympathize with them in that and say, hey, I don't, I don't believe in that Jesus either that you're describing to me. But also telling them, I think you're actually closer to Jesus' kingdom now that you've deconstructed that false Jesus than you were than when you were saying that you followed that guy. Yeah, I think something that we see with cults and other religions all the time, in my experience with doing evangelism, sharing the good news of Jesus with people, it is people that are atheists become believers so much more quickly than those who have been brought up in a cult or other religion and been lied to about who Jesus is for their entire lives. It's so much harder to overcome that when people have this distorted, unbiblical view of Jesus than people who just say, hey, I don't believe in God. We can deal with that, right? And they can often deal with that more quickly than someone who's been lied to their entire lives. But I think most of you in this room did not grow up in a cult. Most of you do not follow another religion and you're not an atheist but I think most of you are here because in some way you are wanting to follow Jesus. So what about your doubts? How do we deal with your doubts? Beginning this year, uh, Recap Gray has become a dear friend of mine, preached from the book of Jude and just, yeah, remember him slowing down at this point. At the end of Jude, I think it's verse 22, where Jude tells us to show mercy to those who doubt. An inspired scripture tells us if you are doubting, others need to show mercy to you during these times. If you have a friend, a family member who's doubting, show mercy to those who doubt. We need to recognize the church has not always been a safe place to express doubts. We should lament that. We should repent when we've been a part of that. The scriptures call us to show mercy to and be patient with those who doubt. I've mentioned before from this pulpit, just an honesty vulnerability that I had a season of serious doubt in my own life. It was actually right after I got married to Olivia. Olivia thinks she's marrying somebody who's gonna be a pastor. And then I had a few friends or a few people I knew, acquaintances, some guys who I knew had read all the books I read, knew all the things I knew, who chose to walk away from the faith. And it really shook me. And again, married to Olivia, I start, yeah, listening to really depressing music, reading atheists and trying to figure out what, what do I actually believe about all this Jesus stuff? I had a lot of questions to wrestle through. But I think one of the things as I began to wrestle through these questions in a fresh way is that I found Christianity be unique uh, against these other religions I was reading about, these other worldviews, and that the claims of Christianity aren't based on just private revelations that have been given to one person. We do have some of those things in the Bible, but that's not what Christianity stands and falls on. 
It doesn't stand on just one guy having this angelic encounter where this revelation from God. What Christianity, what the Bible says it stands and falls on is on a public announcement that Jesus is Lord and that Jesus has been raised from the dead. We have from this account that even skeptical people who don't follow Jesus affirm that Paul wrote 1 Corinthians probably in the 30s, pretty early on, one of the first things we have in the New Testament. And we have there where Paul's saying that Jesus appeared to over 500 witnesses at one time. And he says, most of them are still alive. You can go check with these people. These are the things that Christianity is built on. Pastor Demetrius in our sermon writing meeting this week said, being a believer and coming to gather with the people of God doesn't mean we check our brains at the door. Again, I found that to be true as I was wrestling through these things. And that is what Luke here in this preface is inviting us into. During that season of wrestling with doubt, I found some good answers to my questions, but I didn't get all of my questions answered. And again, to stand before you today, I still don't have all of my questions answered. So how do you, how do I have certainty when we don't have all of our religious and philosophical questions answered? When I use the word certainty, it may be helpful for me to stop here for a second. I think the way that Luke is using certainty is, is having a settled confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be in his word. So how can you and I have a settled confidence that Jesus is who he claimed to be in his word, even when we don't have all of our questions answered? And I don't think what the scriptures lay out for us is that we get this, that we attain this settled confidence by trying to solve the problem of evil or all the mysteries of the universe. Deuteronomy 29, 29 is very clear that there are secret things that belong to the Lord our God. But it's also clear there are things that God has revealed. And I think we grow in our certainty by looking at how God has specifically revealed himself ultimately in Jesus through his word. So again, there's gonna be questions that we don't have answered. How do we grow in certainty and confidence? It's not by feeling we've gotta have all these questions answered, but by focusing in on Jesus, focusing on who he is, And as we do that, as we behold him for who he is, I think our confidence is able to grow in him, our certainty in him. Again, Recav pointed out this week when we were talking about this text, when you read through the gospels, you see Jesus encounter a lot of different people. One of those is the rich young ruler. Then you think about the rich young ruler compared to a guy like Peter and Thomas, two of Jesus' disciples. We know from the gospels, more about Peter and Thomas's doubts with Jesus than the rich young ruler. But one of the differences is, even though the rich young ruler doesn't express doubts, the reason why Peter and Thomas continue on in the faith is because they keep coming to Jesus with their questions and doubts. They don't walk away. They keep coming to him. And hear this, brothers and sisters, keep coming to Jesus. He can handle all of your questions and doubts. God has inspired the book of Psalms. Do you know what it's filled with? Questions and doubts about who God is. This is a part of our worship for us to even lament and ask how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Again, is that true? 
Does the Lord forget his people? No, but it feels like that sometimes, right? And it can be even worship for us to express those things to the Lord. Bring your doubts. He can handle them. But as we do that, bring them to him. Again, keep coming back to him. Keep looking to Jesus in faith. I've also mentioned before one of the the powerful scenes in the gospels that I think the Lord used to really keep me through that season of doubt was the end of John 6, where Jesus says, again, have thousands of people following him. And he starts to say some really hard things. And all of these crowds begin to leave him. You remember what happens? Jesus looks to his disciples and says, are you gonna leave me as well? And Peter, who constantly put his foot in his mouth, who constantly said dumb things in the gospels, gets it right. Maybe the best thing he says in the gospel accounts. He says, where else can we go? Where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Again, at that point, the disciples didn't have everything figured out. It's obvious if you keep reading, they still had lots of doubts and questions and things they had to wrestle through. The same, I imagine is the case for you. I know that it's the same for me. But brothers and sisters, as we consider Jesus, where else can we go? If we encounter him for who he is on his terms, I think we will find, as Tim Keller says, the life and teachings of Jesus, both intellectually credible and existentially satisfying. As Jesus testifies about himself and his word in Matthew chapter seven, that he is the only one that when the storms come, there's a solid rock that you can build your life on. Even when you hit rock bottom in this life, know again that Jesus is the rock and he is steady and sure and he's got you. That's the promise of the scriptures that he will be with us until the end, until he comes and makes everything right, until we see clearly finally when he comes. But until then, we must keep coming to him. He is trustworthy. He has proven himself to be so. So we grow in certainty by encountering Jesus on his terms, through his word and beholding him through the eyes of faith. Jesus claims to be ultimate reality in the gospels. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. And if that's true, then I can trust Jesus because what I do know about him from the gospels but it also means I can entrust to Jesus all the questions and concerns and things that I have that I don't have answers for because he's the truth. He's ultimate reality. I can just entrust all those things under his lordship, even when I don't have all the answers. So I know some of you are wrestling through some serious doubts right now. And again, I'm so glad that you're here. One of the things I would love is for you to invite us into this. Again, I'm not, obviously from what I've said, I'm not promising all the answers to your questions, but we would be honored to be able to enter into those things with you. It's, I don't think helpful for any of us to wrestle through hard things by ourselves. We weren't made for that. So please invite that in. It would be a privilege to walk through those things with you. But I think as we go through this gospel, I, I do want us to be able to consider Jesus and look to him and be able to have a settled confidence one way or the other of what we believe about Jesus. So one of the guys, again, in that kind of season of doubt that 
was an, an atheist, or he would call himself anti-theist, that I enjoyed listening to, reading the most, is a guy named Christopher Hitchens. And he's just an enjoyable writer, but one of the things he talks about is how necessary it is for us as humans to always be pursuing the truth. But one of the things he also said is that I'm skeptical of anyone who actually says he's found it or she's found it. So we should always be pursuing it, but he's skeptical of anybody who says that they've actually found the truth. There's a 20th century philosopher named G.K. Chesterton that said the point of an open mind, open mind's a good thing, but the point of an open mind is the same as an open mouth. It's meant to close on something. Luke wrote this two volume work of Luke and Acts so that his friend could have certainty concerning the things he'd been taught. Again, he's also inviting you into that certainty to consider, again, who Jesus is on his terms. I'm not, I don't think Luke's not inviting you to become closed-minded, but to consider Jesus so that you can close your mind around who he is and what you believe to be true about him. And I, I don't believe there's anything more important in the world that we know who Jesus is and consider him on his terms. It's obvious, again, if, if you've had any education and aware of what's going on in the world, that Jesus' impact on the world is greater than any other person in history. That's why there's been more books written, written about Jesus than any other person. He's the most documented person in the ancient world for a reason. So if you wanna be educated, I think you should know about Jesus and know him on his own terms. But also the magnitude of Jesus' claims are so great that if true, the stakes are as high as possible for this life and beyond. And so you need to consider Jesus again, just to be educated, but also because what he says affects everything. If what he says is true, it changes everything. Luke ends up writing more of the New Testament words wise than his father in the faith, the apostle Paul. But according to Luke's father in the faith, his own testimony that if Jesus is not who he claimed to be, if Jesus really not been raised from the dead, then we should just eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. If you grew up in my generation, you need to know that Paul said that way before Dave Matthews did. Eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die if this isn't true. But if it is true, then everything about your life must change right now because Jesus is indeed Lord. He has been raised from the dead. He is going to one day come back and make all this right. And he has made a way for you and I to be made right with the God of the universe. So if you're not a Christian, again, would you go on this journey with us as we walk through this gospel account together in the months, maybe even years ahead? Again, I, I believe that you will find Jesus to be intellectually credible and existentially satisfying in a way you have found no other person in your life to be. But would you test that? Would you come along with us? We can also know that if you are someone who's struggling to follow Jesus right now and you are filled with all kinds of doubts, this is a safe place for you. We're inviting you again to consider afresh Jesus with us week after week so that we can grow in confidence in who he is. That's the reason why Luke is writing this to a fellow Christian who he wants to grow in certainty. 
And one of the things we do each week is we respond to the Lord's word by coming to the Lord's table. And Jesus tells us to do this in remembrance of him. And this is something the early church was devoted to, something they did over and over and over again as they gathered together. You know why? Because they, like us, needed to be reminded of what's true about Jesus. They need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he has done for them. And as we come to this table, we remember that Jesus, the one who spoke the world into existence through his word, became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the word of God who became flesh. And this Jesus had his body broken to the point of death in his earthly life. Broken to the point of death so that he might offer you eternal life. This Jesus on the cross had his blood shed so that you might be cleansed from all of your unbelief and all of your unrighteousness. There's nothing that can cleanse us. We can never be good enough to earn God's favor. But those who simply turn from their sin and trust in Jesus have God's favor in full. We need to be reminded over and over again, not just in what we hear from the word, we need to taste it. We need to taste Jesus' body broken for us. We need to taste the cup knowing that Jesus drank down the bitterness of God's wrath so that you might taste the sweetness of his grace. And this is an invitation, again, no matter how much you're doubting right now, for anyone who is even in your feeble faith looking to Jesus in faith, this table is here to strengthen you. It's a meal to strengthen you. So look to him afresh in faith. If you are here and not following Jesus, you're not turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus, again, we're so glad you're here. We'd ask that you not come to this table. This is a table that is for those who are trusting in Jesus and following him, but we'd love for you to come to us and maybe not take of this bread, but to take of Christ through faith. And that may be a long journey and process for you weighing whether Jesus is actually worth following. And we would love to enter that with you. So I'll be on the steps and for other leaders to be on the steps. Even again, if you came with someone that you know is following Jesus, please have that conversation with them. Begin to let us in that process with you. Begin no matter where you are tonight. Begin know the invitation to look to Jesus, to accept the life and salvation that's offered in him is there. So we pray, Lord, give us grace to all do that. Uh, Father, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, uh, but that God has come to us in Jesus as we sang about earlier, Emmanuel, God with us. We thank you that you have done for us in Jesus what we can never do for ourselves. We can never be good enough to atone for our sins, but Jesus is our atonement, full and free. Father, we pray you would give us grace tonight. Those who are struggling to look to Jesus in faith, that you would give us the eyes of faith to behold him as he is tonight by your spirit so that we can worship him in spirit and truth. I pray that you would strengthen us 
Strengthen our faith with this meal as we come and as we take of the bread and the cup and be reminded once again of the truth of what you have done for us in Jesus. Father, I pray that this would be a place, this would be a family where those who are struggling and doubting would feel safe to bring those things into the light so that we can grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Father, we know from the testimony of your word, we see dimly now. There are so many things we don't understand. We thank you that we can entrust them all to Jesus and we can entrust them to you, our Father as well, because we know that your heart is kind and that you are good and you have shown that to us ultimately in your son. If you've not spared your own son, but freely given him up for us, how will you not also with him freely give us all things? Help us to grow in our trust for you, knowing your goodness and grace. Help us to live for your glory, we pray. And ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.